Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at the idea of the heavenly race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I don't know how many of you uh, are runners. Uh, I married a runner. Um, She did not. And uh, I told her, I said, this is why I know martial arts. I'm not going to run from anything. I'm just going to fight it. No sense in running when you can fight. A couple of years ago, we went to the Memphis Marathon. And she, Rebecca was going to run in the Memphis Marathon. Again, I was not. And uh, I went to spectate. And so I found out pretty early on that they have chips that they wear. And those chips allow you to download an app. And you can actually watch in real time where a particular runner is on the course. So that will give you time to do other things while they're running because you can't be along the race course. You can go at key places and watch them pass, which is what I did. And I found that it was really great because I could look on my phone, on the app, and watch Rebecca running down along the river there in Memphis. And I was sitting in the Peabody lobby eating key lime pie, (laughs) watching. That is not a joke. And um, I said, oh, she's really, she's really doing, she's really doing well on time. And And um, so then I kind of measured it out and I made it down to the finish line to watch them pass the finish line. And as I got there, I got there early to get a good spot. And I was watching uh, the runners come in and there was so much energy and there was so much enthusiasm and the band was playing and they and and everybody, they were announcing the names as people were passing through and, and they were running together. And it was just, I mean, it was very dramatic and very epic. And there for a moment, it went through my mind, this might be something I might like to do. And then I saw a guy come through and throw up all over himself. And then another guy came in and his legs wobbled. And when he crossed the finish line, he collapsed. They dragged him into a wheelchair and pushed him away. And and I thought, you know, no, I don't think, I don't think so. I don't think that's something I want to do. Because I saw the price they were paying. And I, I knew how long Rebecca had trained to do that. And it was just this, it was a constant preparation a constant training you had to watch what you ate you had to monitor how much you were running you had to monitor your fluid intake and all sorts of things that you had to think about in order to be involved in this race and what we find when we look in God's word is that we are involved if we're followers of Christ in a heavenly race and the stakes are much higher and the race is much harder and it's much longer than we might anticipate There are many twists and turns that you did not know were on that course, and yet we are told that we are to run this heavenly race for Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians, we find that Paul gives a layout of what that race looks like from his perspective, from a biblical perspective. And it's important to understand that in the ancient times, there were two major, there were others, but there were two major groups of games that were played. One was the Olympics, and I know we're all familiar with the Olympics, and in ancient times, that's where the Olympics began. 
The other one was called the Isthmian Games. And the Isthmian Games occurred in an area around Corinth and around that peninsula. They would understand all of the metaphors of the Isthmian Games. So you had the Olympics and you had the Isthmian Games. And so Paul is, is calling to memory some of the events and some of the activities and some of the training for the Isthmian Games. And that is what he refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting with verse 24. So we're going to pick up there and read through verse 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning from your word. We know that your word is truth. Your word is an eternal is eternal truth and so father we come before you and we ask that you would speak clearly to our hearts and that you would align our minds with you and we ask this in jesus name amen well if we're looking at this idea of the heavenly race that we find here there are a few things that paul lays out very clearly the first thing he lays out about this heavenly race is that the stakes are eternal eternity hangs in the balance when you run this heavenly race. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run in a way that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, this verse, the one about the perishable wreath and the imperishable wreath. They would run and the the wreath they would receive the prize they would receive was a wreath of leaves that they would wear a crown of leaves that they would wear around their head and they would grow old they would grow brown they would dry up they would fall away from the stems and it was to show that this victory here on earth this physical victory it would fade it was not something that you could rely upon but he says that we are running for an imperishable crown. We are running for an imperishable wreath. We are running for a prize that does not fade away. But notice what he says as we started this. In verse 24, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? In ancient times, there was no silver, silver medal. There was no bronze medal. In short, there was no second place. There was no honorable mention. If you ran the race and you won, you received the prize. If you came in second, that meant you were number one among the losers. You didn't get anything. So only if you won, only if you came in first did you receive a prize. Paul is using this metaphor from those games and he's saying it's the same way here. It's the same way. You don't come in second place in this heavenly race. You are either running your race for Christ or you're not. There is no second place. There is no silver medal when it comes to this heavenly race because the stakes are eternal. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, 
Paul writes this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He hasn't obtained it yet, he says. I haven't reached it yet. I haven't achieved it yet. I've not been made exactly into the likeness of Christ yet. So I am going to continue to press forward. I'm going to continue to run. I'm going to continue to exert effort because Paul understands that the stakes are eternal. If we understood that, if we lived our lives as though everything that we do for Christ will last for all eternity, it will change the way that you live your life. What we do, if we have Christ living within us, what we do for the kingdom will last for eternity. We have an eternity that hangs in the balance. So when we run a race, we're not running it just for today. We're running our race with eternity in mind. We're running our race that's a heavenly race. It may not make sense to the world. The world may not completely understand that because the world may be living for right now. Culture saying right now, get as much as you can and hold on to it and cling to it. And when you die, leave a good looking corpse. That's what culture says. But God's word says we are to look beyond this earth. We are to look beyond what culture values. We are to look beyond the right now or even the tomorrow. We are to look toward eternity because the stakes of this race are eternal. In the book of 1 Peter, in chapter 4, Peter shows us what that perspective looks like. How does that come out in our living? In 1 Peter chapter 4, starting with verse 7, Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand. Now, some people have said, well, Peter was mistaken. The, the end didn't occur in Peter's lifetime. Jesus did not return in Peter's lifetime. I guess Peter made a mistake. Do you realize that ever since Jesus ascended back to heaven, we've been living in the last days. And every day is just one day closer to the day that he returns. And so when people say, well, when do you think he's going to come back? Well, we don't know the hour. We don't know the time. But we can say for certain that we are one day closer than we were yesterday. So Jesus is going to return. And Peter is saying, we live like it could occur at any moment. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, because this is true, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, because the end is at hand, we need to be heavenly minded. Because the end is at hand, we need to be focused on those things ahead. Now, I know sometimes people use this phrase, and you've probably heard it. Don't be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. And I've heard people use that expression. And what they mean by that is, don't get so caught up in what is to come that you are not relatable here on earth to other people. And I understand that. But the argument from the Bible 
is the idea of only if you are truly heavenly minded can you be biblically of earthly good. Only if you're truly heavenly, because if you're truly biblically heavenly minded, you are concerned about what goes on with other people. According to 1 Peter, you are. You are concerned about getting along with each other. You are concerned about being a witness for Christ and bringing people to Jesus. You are concerned about that. And so we need to understand that there is a right kind of heavenly minded. There's also a heavenly minded that distances us from the things of reality so much so that we, we might separate from other people. We might completely back away. Uh, a couple of friends of mine, dear friends that I have up in Tennessee, uh, they have distanced themselves from the world so much that basically they're just one step shy of building a bomb shelter and living in the bomb shelter uh, doing Bible studies. All right. Well, that's not what God's called us to do. God's called us to interact. God's called us to be witnesses. God's called us to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs that salt and that light. It definitely needs that preservation. It definitely needs that flavor. It definitely needs that illumination. And we are called to be those people. The stakes are eternal. So whenever we live our lives, when we go out this week, may we understand there is no second place in the heavenly race. There is no silver medal. There is no honorable mention. We are to run our race in such a way that we understand and that we are making known that we understand the stakes are eternal. Secondly, our sin is combative. Look at verse 26. Our sin is combative. So I do not run aimlessly. Because the stakes are so high, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I do not box as one beating the air. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Why does he do that? Because our sin is combative. That unredeemed part of us, our flesh, fights the work of the Spirit. Now let's understand. Sometimes we use this phrase, and it's, it's not really an accurate biblical phrase we say well you know we have two natures we have a sin nature and then we have god's nature and they fight each other that's not what the bible says uh, before we come to christ we have we are by nature the bible says children of wrath that's our nature but whenever we come to christ we have a new nature but the habits not our old nature our old person dies but the habits of our old person the desires of the person we once were, those live on. That's what we battle. Not our sin nature, but the habits of that sinful person we used to be. The Bible refers to that as the flesh. So we combat the habits, the wheel ruts, the grooves that our old person wore, those old desires, those old practices. That's what we fight. And so Paul understands that our sin is combative. So what does he do? He says, I don't run aimlessly. He stays the course. He doesn't run over here and run over here and take a, take a, a, a detour over here as he's running. He said, I don't do that. And he said, I do not box as one beating the air. That's the, a term that means shadow boxing. He says, I'm actually accomplishing something. I'm no longer just training. I'm no longer throwing punches in the air, shadow boxing. But notice what he says he does. I discipline my body and keep it under control. That word discipline is very specific. It means literally to punch something under the eye. That's what it means. To throw a punch 
and give it a black eye, to deliver a knockout punch. That's what Paul is saying. Now, now is Paul saying he's literally going around punching himself in the face? No. But he's saying that he disciplines those desires. He throws a knockout punch to those desires. A few uh, number of years ago when I was in martial arts class, I mentioned earlier, up at the church where I served, we had a martial arts class every Monday night. And uh, I, was, I was there, and uh, it was one of the only places that I could get in a fist fight with members, and it was okay. And um, make of that what you will. But anyway, um, so I was, I was with one of our members, and, and, and we, were, we were fighting. And um, he threw a punch at my eye, and as he threw this right jab at my face, he dropped his left hand, which he was using to, as a guard. And he dropped his left hand as he threw that punch. And when I saw that left hand come down, I thought, there's my opportunity. And so I threw a right hook toward his jaw as he was throwing a right jab. And the only thing is, I dropped my left at the same time. And so he was a little ahead of me, but we met at the same time. And he punched me in the left eye, and I caught him on the corner of the left jaw. And I went back to the wall, and he went down toward the floor. And we got up, and I could feel my eyes swelling. And I looked at him, and he said, well, you got me. I said, well, you got me too. And then he opened his mouth to say something else and grabbed his jaw. And I was like, that's right. That's right. Well, the next day I woke up, and I walked into the office. And I sat down in staff meeting. And somebody said, you have a black eye. And I said, yeah, I do. And they said, what happened? I said, well, I got in a fight with so-and-so. You got in a fight with a member? I was like, well, it's in karate class. It's okay. And I said, they were like, well, was he okay? And I was like, is he okay? Man, what, about, what about me? I got a black eye. This is, you know, you know he couldn't chew real well for a few days, but, um, but he could kind of hide it, but I couldn't. So I'm up preaching you know, it really embarrassed him because I, I was doing a Bible study and I said, hey, everybody, look at this. You see, you know who did this? He did. And um, got a little sympathy there. But this is the same term that Paul is using. Throw a knockout punch, throw, a, 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 throw an eye-blackening punch at your desires. That's what he says that he does. He throws a black eye-making punch right into the face of his desires. He disciplines, disciplines his body. And notice he says, and keep it under control. It's a phrase that means he beats it into submission. He makes it a slave for his own purposes. This is serious stuff. Why would Paul talk about such violent imagery? Because Paul understands that our sin is combative. You don't play around with sin. You treat it very, very seriously. You punch it under the eye. You make it a slave. And you understand that you have to exert that self-control. That's what we found just one verse back in verse 25. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. And Paul is saying here that he keeps his body under control. He disciplines his body. He disciplines that sinful flesh that rises up in him to combat the things of God. How seriously do you view your sin? Do you view your personal sin toward God in that serious of a nature? Do you see it as something that wants to waylay you in the race toward heaven for Christ? Now, I don't mean to lose your salvation, but I'm saying to make you ineffective. We'll talk more about that in a moment. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews pens these words, Therefore, 
since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. He's talking about everybody in chapter 11. The witnesses of their lives live by faith. Since we can look back on all of these witnesses to the faith in God and the power of the faith in God as it is practiced, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're to lay aside every weight. It's helpful to know that in the Isthmian Games, as well as the Olympics, athletes competed in their birthday suits so that there would be nothing that would hinder them. You, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be slowed down by your clothing or anything like that. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, anything that would hinder you from running your race, lay it aside so you can run your race with endurance. Get rid of any excess weight. Get rid of anything that would slow you down. Get rid of anything that would hamper you because our sin is combative and our sin wants to keep us from running the race that God has set before us. This is why in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter writes this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's saying as sojourners and exiles, you are just passing through here. This is not your permanent place of residence this is not your final destination since we are just passing through since we are looking toward eternity we have to lay aside all of these earthly desires we are because they wage war against the soul colossians is even more blatant about this colossians 3 5 put to death therefore what is earthly in you Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul writes in Colossians, we are to put these, these desires to death. We are to kill them. We are to crucify them. Well, how do we crucify them? Well, we don't do it by some legalistic standard. We don't do it by, I'm going to follow a list of do's and don'ts, and that's going to make me okay, and that's going to make me right. That's not what the Bible says. And every now and then I'll talk to somebody and, and I talked to somebody just a couple of weeks ago and this was sort of the statement. Well, you know, we are incapable of combating our sin by ourselves. I said, that's absolutely true. Then the statement was made, well, then that means we just have to be okay when we mess up because God's okay when we mess up and God's going to show us grace because he knows we're not perfect. And I said, well, wait a minute. The Bible says that we are to discipline ourselves. Yeah, but the Bible's calling us to something that nobody can do. I said, well, no, no, no. In and of ourselves, we can't. But the Bible's very clear that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can obey God. We can follow Christ in obedience. Will it be perfect? No. But we can follow him in obedience. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 13. And this is the verse that I brought up to this individual. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. It doesn't say you're on your own, figure it out. Paul is talking about boxing and disciplining his body and beating it into submission, but he's not talking about doing that by his own power. He's talking about relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. He's talking about relying on the power of God's Word to point out where he's going astray. And then relying upon the power of God's word and the power of God's spirit to obey Christ in those ways. We are to strive for that. 
Will we run that race perfectly? Listen, there's only one who has ever run that race perfectly, and that is Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ, having run that race perfectly, having shown us what it's like to run the race perfectly, and having given us his Holy Spirit, does that mean we are able to run it absolutely perfectly? No, we will sin along the way, but yet it can be an upward course as God empowers us to live for him. We rely upon Christ. We rely upon his grace. We rely upon his power to live in the now. That's not legalism. That's relying upon God to transform us by the power of Christ. So how does the Holy Spirit produce that in us, that desire to kill sin? He produces that in us when we have a desire to love Jesus more. Do you love Jesus more than your sin? That's the question I ask myself often. God, I want to love you more than I love my sin. Jesus, I want to love you more than I love this thing or that thing. Create in me a deeper love for Christ. And if I have a deeper love for Christ, I'm going to have a deepening hatred for my own sin. It'll happen. But I first must seek Christ. But I have to rely on his power. You know, sometimes in the Bible, you find verses or you find principles in the Bible and concepts in the Bible where it seems like an apparent contradiction. But it's not a contradiction, at least not in God's understanding. It's not a contradiction at all. But sometimes what we want to do is we want to alleviate all spiritual tension. And in doing so, we sometimes can create false beliefs when we try to alleviate tension. I actually believe that if you look throughout history, you will find that many false teachings arise when people try to fix or alleviate a biblical tension that shouldn't be remedied and shouldn't be lessened at all and one of those verses is in colossians chapter 1 verse 29 listen to what paul writes for this i toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me now there's that apparent tension paul says i toil i struggle I'm struggling, I'm toiling as I'm working for Jesus, but he says, I struggle and toil with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Now, a lot of people would say that doesn't make any sense. If it's his energy, Jesus's energy that powerfully works in Paul, then Paul should just be able to sit back and be passive and let Jesus do everything and he just doesn't do a thing. But no, Paul understands he is struggling and he is toiling against those sinful desires. He is struggling and he is toiling against things that would hinder him from walking as Christ would want him to walk. So how does Paul do that? He doesn't do it by his own power. He does it by relying on the power of Christ. And so there's a tension there that doesn't need to be resolved because we have to understand our sin is combative and Jesus equips us to deal with our sin. Where is it in your life? And I'm not asking you to say it. Well, what's that one sin? Uh, the, the old translation sometimes talk about the besetting sin. What's that old sin? That sin that it, it just keeps coming back around. That same old, same old. Maybe you've struggled with it for years and it just keeps recirculating, resurfacing over and over again. Do you realize that God has the power if you rely upon his power to crucify that sin? But here's the thing, 
The problem with our sinful self is this. It doesn't stay dead. We crucify it. We nail it to the cross. But it never stays dead. You know those old movies? Maybe not even old movies. You know that, that old, I'll, I'll say that, that old um, convention in movies where it's, it's toward the end of the movie and you think the bad guy's dead and you think everything's resolved and then suddenly the bad guy's like, ah! He comes to life, or doesn't really come to life, isn't quite dead yet. One more last, one more last fight, one more, one more last conflict that emerges because the bad guy isn't really down. That's exactly what our flesh does. You say, I am done with that sin. I never have to deal with it again. And a few minutes later, by that last reel, he's up and at it again, attacking yet again. Our sin is combative and it's, it's constantly combative. And so we must be constantly vigilant to deal with our sin. The stakes are eternal. Our sin is combative. And then finally, God's standard is holiness. God's standard is holiness. Look at verse 27 again. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The phrase that, or the word that he uses there for disqualified, it's, it's a very specific phrase. And it's very specific to these type of games. Because before the competition began... And if you, if you visit ancient Corinth or any of those areas, you can see these structures. There was a little building and there that was built around the stadium or around the amphitheater where these games would take place. And the judge, the official, would take each athlete in there one-on-one. -on -one, and that athlete would swear an oath. I am going to follow the rules. I am going to compete by the rules and that word disqualified is the word that means when an athlete failed to compete according to the standards so paul says i'm disciplining my body i'm doing combat with this sinful part of me so that i might not be disqualified well verse uh I'm sorry second timothy chapter 2 verse 5 paul writes an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules according to this oath. And so when we live our lives, God's standard, we must understand God's standard is holiness. First Timothy chapter four, verse seven, have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness for, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Train yourself for godliness. Understanding that training yourself for godliness not only impacts the way you live your life here, but it also is a bearing, has reflection upon the life that is to come. God's standard is holiness. What does John write? 1 John chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we be has not yet appeared. We don't know everything we're going to be when we're transformed into the image of Christ. Not that we'll be deity, not at all but we made perfect. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And notice verse three, and everyone who has this hope or who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If we have a heavenly hope, we purify ourselves. How do we do that? We rely upon God's word and God's spirit to transform us into the likeness of Christ. 
And because of that, that means we need to pay careful attention to the way that we're living our lives. We need to pay careful attention to what's going on in our minds, careful attention to what's going on in our hearts. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes this, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Examine yourselves, test yourselves, prove yourselves. Now, that doesn't mean you do a lot of stuff and you go, ah, I do a lot of stuff, and so, so therefore I'm saved. No, that is the outworking of our salvation. That's the fruit of our salvation. We show evidence that we belong to Christ, and that evidence that we show is evidence of holiness. Would you say that your life has been marked with holiness? Would you say that on a day-to-day basis, that's what you're striving for? Holiness? To be set apart for the use of God? To be set apart for the purposes of God? That's what God calls us to. And understand, this isn't legalism. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about, I'm going to keep a list of do's and don'ts. Ben Franklin wrote about how he was wanting to practice different virtues that he found throughout the Bible. And he said that he had made a checklist. And every day at the end of the day, he would go through and he would check off the different qualities that he had shown that day. And he said, in very short order, he realized that that was a futile exercise. Because he said, I realized that if I ever reached a day that I could check off every one of these godly characteristics, so to, say, so to speak. He said, I would not be able to check off humility. Because the moment that I thought I have achieved all this, then I would become proud and I would be, be puffed up because of that accomplishment. And so he said, I got rid of that list making and list taking. And so I think that so many times that's what we do. I just need a list of things. And if I can meet this list, then I'm okay. Then I'm okay with God. No, 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 no. It's a relationship, not a bunch of rules that we follow. And so we follow God. We grow in the likeness of Christ. We're transformed into his likeness and his standard is holiness. So at the end of it all, at the end, as Paul is reaching the end of his life, hearkening back to these ideas of games Paul writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 I fought the good fight I have finished the race I have kept the faith Uh, some commentators say that in the Greek that if you read this phrase these phrases in the Greek it reflects that athletic competition much more clearly because what he's saying literally is I fought the good fight I've won in the boxing match. I have finished the race. I have run that race that was set out in those games and I have finished it and I have won that race. I came in first in that race. He's not talking about first out of everybody else. He's talking about his own life. He finished his race. And then I have kept the faith. Literally, I have kept the athletic oath that I made with the judge. I've kept my oath. I've kept my promise to compete in the way the judge says I must compete. And who is that judge? Well, he goes on. Verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. The awards were given out 
at the very last day of the competitions in those games. And here is Paul saying, on that last day, when I'm done running my race and I am finished with my race, that's the last day of my race. That's the last day for me to compete. And I know that I'm going to receive a crown. I know that I'm going to receive an imperishable prize from the judge that I made an oath with. I'm, I'm going to follow your rules. I'm going to run like you say to run. I'm going to compete like you say to compete. And I'm going to run this race with your strength, not my own. I am going to do battle and I'm going to get involved in that boxing match with my fleshly desires, not by my strength, but by yours, because I'm running this race. I'm fighting this fight. I'm involved in this for one person alone and that is Jesus I'm running for him I'm fighting for him I'm dying for him I'm living for him and he is the one that I will face and he is the one I will be made like one day the one who ran his race and fought his fight absolutely perfectly so the stakes are high because they are eternal and and we all deal with some sin that is combating how we live our lives how we run that race. But God says, here's my standard. It's utter and complete holiness, and that holiness is found in the person of Jesus. I find it a beautiful thing, and also a staggering thing, that Jesus says, you can't run your race by yourself. That's impossible. So I'm gonna run, I'm gonna run the race for you to ensure the prize but you still have a race to run. You're running to obtain the prize that I've already won. The prize that you're obtaining is only awarded to you because I ran this race before you ever thought about running it. I ran this race before you even knew there was a race. And I ran this race and I ran it perfectly and I fought this fight and I fought it perfectly and I'm giving you my righteousness, I'm giving you my word, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit to help you run this race toward me. And the fanfare and the celebration and the, all the epic goings on at the Memphis Marathon when my belly was full of key lime pie watching Rebecca cross that finish line cannot even begin to compare with what it's going to be on that day when Christ awards us with that imperishable crown for those who ran the race for him. Are you running the race for Jesus? Are you in the race for Jesus? Maybe some of you say, I've never even started that race. I didn't even know there was a race. Well, there is. And Jesus ran that race perfectly. When we could not, when we could not run that race and we could not deal with our own sin and we could not face that penalty of our sin without a death to our own self and then be separated from God for all eternity because that's the penalty of sin, to be separated from God, to be separated from Christ for all eternity. That is the just payment for each of our sins. Yet Jesus lived a perfect life, ran a perfect race, and died a death in our place. So that if we trust that he took our place, he took our penalty. He took the wrath of God upon himself that was rightly due each one of us. And if we trust that he took that as a substitute for us, and if we trust in that and follow him, surrender to him, then we can have eternal life. And we, on that day, when we make that decision, we enter into the race. And we run our race now for God. We run our race now for Christ, not for ourselves, not for the world, not for culture, 
but for Christ alone. And if you've never made that decision, let me encourage you, make that decision today. Make that decision to follow him. And, it, and maybe you're in the race and you're saying, I'm just tired. The race has worn me out. The race is hard. It's long. Pray that God would give you strength to continue that race. Get back up off the sideline. If you're sitting on the race course, say, I just quit. I'm done. No, you're not done. You're only done when the judge says you're done. Get back in the race. Run your race with endurance, the race that is set before you. It is a heavenly race, and the stakes are eternal. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this heavenly race that for those of us who are following you, we're in. It's hard. It's tiring. It's frustrating sometimes. Sometimes it seems like we're running backwards. Sometimes it seems like we'll never reach that finish line. But Father, in the midst of all that, we recognize that by your spirit, you breathe into us that, that second win, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, 18th, 126th wind. Because Father, we need you to sustain us. It's not about us. It's not about our power. It's not about our strength. It's about your power. It's about your strength. It's your race. You set the course. You set the parameters. You set the rules. You have the, the standard. And not only do you have the standard, you have the strength that you give us in order to run the race according to your standard. Father, we thank you for that. Thank you that we're not left on our own to figure it out left on our own to gut it out, left on our own to try to figure it out. So Father, we pray now that you might go before each one of us. If there's anybody here or anybody watching or listening that has never set foot on this race course, on this heavenly race toward, toward you, Father, I pray that they would, today they'd make that decision to surrender to that call and they would step out in faith and follow you. Father, there's some people here who've been running the race for a very long time. And Father, some of them are growing tired. Their legs are weary, their mind is weary. They're, they're just struggling along in the race. Father, I pray that you just might, by your power, give them the encouragement to continue to run in that race, recognizing that it's worth it. No matter the pain, no matter the struggle, no matter the toil, it is worth it. And not only that, you're the one who supplies us with the strength to continue running. So, Father, I pray that by your spirit and by your word, you might encourage us to continue the race. And Father, I pray today, whatever decision needs to be made, whether that's a public decision or whether that's some decision there where we stand, Father, I pray that you would just make that clear and you would give us the discernment and wisdom for what step of faith you would have us to take next. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.